It's good to see you today. So let me start with a basic question, really the most fundamental question that any of us can ask here today, how does this work? I mean, how, did, how does any of this work? How, how does this thing that we call following Jesus work? Is, is it something that I'm supposed to think or to affirm in my mind as being true? Are there a package of things that I'm supposed to know? Is that what following Jesus is? Um, is it something I'm supposed to say out loud? Am I supposed to move from what's in my head out into my mouth and, and somehow I'm saying it out loud? That's, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Or is it something I'm supposed to feel? Am I supposed to have uh, some kind of feeling, um, something triggered in my emotions, and I'm supposed to somehow maintain that? Is that what following Jesus is? Or is it something I'm supposed to do? Is there some kind of behavior I'm supposed to engage in? Is there some kind of practice that I'm supposed to make a regular part of my life? Is that what following Jesus is all about? That, that's a question I think that many people have asked for 2,000 years when they have considered what it means to follow Jesus and how it works. And I'm convinced of this, absolutely convinced of this, that Jesus came to tell us how to follow him in simple, easy-to-understand language that simple, uneducated, just common folk could hear, understand, and do. That's what Jesus came to do. One of my favorite preacher sayings, and I've said this before, I've said it recently, but it's worth saying here, that Jesus came and spent three years making the complex things of God simple, and preachers have spent the last 2,000 making the things of God difficult to understand again. We continue to give you words, and we continue to give you all of these different things, but at the end of the day, people come to church, I think, because they want to, how does this work? I mean, what, what is it I'm supposed to do? If, we're, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, how does this work? And the passage of Scripture, I think, that explains it most simply and beautifully is our passage today. If you would, please find John 15 in your copy of God's Word. Um, you know, passages of Scripture are a little like um, uh, family members, children. You, you, you don't you're not supposed to really have favorites, uh, but, but, but John 15 just kind of stands out. I, in fact, I would say if I were forced to say what was my favorite passage of Scripture, John 15 would be at the top of the list because I think it tells us how this works, how this thing called following Jesus works. And I have preached from this several times since I've been your pastor. Uh, it's my favorite passage of Scripture. That should not surprise you. Now, some of you may recognize some of the things I have said and say, well, I've heard him say that before. Well, good for you because I can't remember what I said last week. But I'm guessing most of you uh, will find this to be uh, new information for you and helpful. So if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus speaking says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. So right off the bat, Jesus, we know this, we may not have thought about it, but Jesus is asking us to make a comparison. He says to his disciples, I am the true vine, meaning that there's an inauthentic vine out there, at least in their minds. Now, that language may be a bit puzzling to us, but again, Jesus, speaking simple words to simple people that they would have grasped, said these words because those to whom he was speaking understood exactly what he was referring to. You see, the vine was in Christ's day the dominant symbol of Judaism. When we think of Judaism, we tend to think of the Star of David. But in Christ's time, the vine was the dominant symbol. It adorned the temple. In fact, a little past Jesus, they even began to imprint it on their currency. Israel viewed themselves as the vine. Now, they weren't wrong in doing that because there were some words spoken by the prophet Isaiah speaking for God that called attention to the vininess of Israel. In fact, I want to show those to you right now. So hold your place in John 15. Let's go find Isaiah, Old Testament. Let's find Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. And uh, I want you to see a, a parable, a song really that Isaiah gives us of the vineyard and the, the owner of the vineyard. He says, he begins in verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He is sing, singing, he is, he is calling attention to the people listening to him, to God. He is telling a story of the beloved God and his relationship with a vineyard. And on verse 2, it says of this vineyard, he dug it out, he cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Well, duh, that's why you plant a vineyard, right? You plant a vineyard expecting grapes. And so the song goes, obviously referring to God, that God had planted a vineyard, and he'd done everything he could to make sure that the vineyard was successful. And so he comes as the owner of the vineyard to the vineyard looking for grapes. But look at the last part of verse 2. It says, but it yielded wild grapes. Not the same thing. Something different entirely. I grew up in the woods, outside of town, like every boy ought to grow up, you know. Don't, don't let this cultured, refined uh, exterior uh, mislead you. I, I'm a country boy redneck. 
And when I was growing up, in the springtime, you'd be running the hills, and you'd come across uh, these little strawberry plants, wild strawberries. How many people have ever seen wild strawberry? You all live, there's too much pavement in your life, all right? Wild strawberry, it's about that big. And sometimes you could find one a little bit fatter, but you'd, you'd find them. And you'd eat them. They kind of tasted like a strawberry. Um, you kind of hoped you didn't get sick. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you, you'd come across them and, and you'd eat them. But you knew just by looking, that's not the real deal. I mean, that's, that's not a real, a real strawberry. There's an obvious, obvious difference. And you taste the two. It's completely, completely different. So this is a big thing that God is saying. It's not like, well... We can make do with this. That's not what he's saying at all. He comes to the vineyard and he says, I expected to see luscious, beautiful grapes. And what I found instead were a bunch of wild grapes. So what is God, the owner of the vineyard, to do? He, he goes on and says this, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. He's saying, I want you guys who are listening to Isaiah singing this song, the inhabitants of Israel and, and Judah, uh, Jerusalem and Judah, I want, you to, I want you to make a decision here. He says, what more was there that I could have done for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? He said, I did everything that I could possibly do for this vineyard, and it didn't do what I expected it to do. I mean, do you agree? And the people would have said, well, yeah, absolutely. We do agree. Verse 5, he says, here's what I'm going to do about it. I'll tell you what I'll do. What I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be devoured. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they bring no rain on it. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to try to fix it. I'm just going to plow it under. I'm just going to let it go back to wild territory, Bri uh, briars and brambles, and not going to water it anymore, not going to work. I'm just going to let it go back. All right, who's he talking about? Verse 7, it's not going to show up on your screens, I don't think, so you have to actually use your Bible. Look at verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Here's what, here's what Jeremiah or what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying God planted the vineyard Israel to flourish and to be a blessing to those who encountered it. In fact, this was the initial promise to Abraham. I want you to go and I will make you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's what he expected to find. But instead, instead, it was a bunch of worthless, wild grapes. And so what, what God does here is pronounce final judgment on the nation of Israel and on Judaism. It was not doing what it was intended to do. And the story is left hanging for 700 years. And then Jesus comes the night before he dies and he says to his disciples, I'm the true vine. See, God kept his promise to Abraham out of that, out of that terrible chaos that is Jewish national history. He preserved for himself a faithful remnant from whom Jesus the Messiah sprang up. And he says, no longer look to Israel as being the vine that flourishes, that blesses the world. It is me. I am 
the true vine. That's the comparison he's making. He's saying the, the hope of all of humanity rests in me. He is teaching a very self-centered parable here. He's pointing everybody to himself. And he says, if you want to know what life is all about, you must follow me. So we're back to where we started. How does this work? How does following Jesus work on a practical level? There are two things I want to show you this morning that are rooted in this text. First, the power for following, the power for doing this is in abiding. In abiding. You say, well, I didn't need you to tell me that. I mean, the word abide, a form of it, shows up five different times in 11 verses here. I mean, clearly the concept of abiding is, is, is all the way through this passage of Scripture. The tricky part is what does abiding mean? And in the world in which we live, um, I think it has become uh, something that most of the people in this room would be able to understand, because most of you all are, are my age or a little younger. The myth that controlled the world in which I grew up was the Star Wars myth, right? And abiding is something like being at the feet of a Jedi master. You know, you just, I got I to gotta kind of release myself and feel my way through it, and, and it's all kind of this contemplative navel-gazing philosophy stuff. That's what it means to abide. But again, remember, Jesus is speaking to simple people, words that they can understand that are very, very practical. And what abide means is simply this. When he says, abide in me, I'm the true vine, he says, the hope of humanity, the hope for your life rests in me. What you need to do is abide in me. What he is saying is, is that you need to enter into a transformative and renewing relationship with me. And most Baptists say, well, I did that. I mean, I, I walked an aisle of vacation Bible school, and I, I gave my life to Jesus. That's when I made the decision to abide, missing that Jesus is speaking in an active sense. Clearly, there has to be a moment of surrender to follow, but he's speaking here of an ongoing act of abiding in him, that it is a continual focus of our lives. He is saying that, that if you want to get to where God wants you to be, if you want to be blessed in the ways that God longs to bless you, you need to be in this active and ongoing relationship, a transformative relationship with me. Now, one of the things that happens in the modern church is uh, we begin to think, well, in order to do that, I've got to be in relationship with other people. And please hear me. The Christian faith is meant to work in community. There is no such thing as a healthy Christian life lived in isolation. It is meant to work in community. But what we do is we say we want to have these accountability groups. And what winds up happening in an accountability group is this. You'll get three, five, seven people together and person one will say, well, here's how my life was jacked up this week. And person two says, well, here's how my life was jacked up this week. And you go around the circle, and at the end of your hour together, the only thing you can agree on is that you're all jacked up. But we believe, we believe that because we're together, there's something about your relationship that will rub off on me that will transform me. But listen to me. There is only one relationship that can transform our lives. 
And it is our life in Jesus. And the only way an accountability group will work for you is if that group is helping you connect all of your mess to Jesus, not themselves. Not themselves. In fact, that's the only way the church works. The only way the church works is if we bring us all together and we understand that, that your only hope is not Blue Valley Baptist Church or any church. It's Jesus who is proclaimed at Blue Valley Baptist Church. So accountability groups are not the answer. It's this relationship that is the answer. There's only one relationship that can transform. So again, how do we do that? How do we maintain and engage this, this abiding relationship with Christ? And I'm going to sound like a broken record. We, we engage in this relationship with Christ, this ongoing relationship with Christ through, through the Word and, and through prayer and through worship and through meditating on the Word, rehearsing memorized passages in our mind to think more deeply about them. We do it through silence, sitting in silence, listening to God. We do it through time alone, solitude. If we're ridiculous, we do it through fasting. That's how it happens. But if you'll remember last week, I shared with you there's a danger to it. You can, you can hear those kinds of things, and you can begin to do those kinds of things, but very quickly, if you're not careful, your focus becomes on doing the thing. And we talked about how the focus needs to be on Jesus. So what happens if you're not really focused on doing the thing, but you're still not really feeling a connection with Christ in the practice of those things? What may be happening is that you may be primping spiritually, looking into a mirror to see how good you look. So you open up the Word and you go looking for me. How does this help me today? You're the target of your reading. Or in prayer, you say, how does, how does uh, this uh, situation need to turn out? God, I'll tell you, your focus is on me. You go me, 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 me. And so all of a sudden, all you're doing when you're engaging the Word is not focusing on Jesus. You're not focusing on the thing, but you're focusing on yourself. What happens if you're in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ is that when you crack open the Word, you go looking for Jesus. And when you go to the Lord in prayer, it's to encounter Jesus, just to sit at His feet. And that is enough. I wish I could tell you I have all of this whipped. But many times I'll open up my Word and it's, honestly, it's either a focus on a thing or it's a focus on me. I have the same kinds of struggles that many of you all struggle with, but listen to me. When you have those moments, when you finally, by the grace of, of Jesus in you, place your focus on Jesus and you meet him, your life begins to take on a fundamentally different character. The power for living the life that you want to live, for overcoming sin, for living a life that, that honors God, the power for doing that is not in you, it's outside of you flowing into you. It is the life of Jesus. It is abiding in Jesus. That's where the power comes from. But then let's ask ourselves, what is the purpose for all of this? What is the purpose for all of this? What is the purpose of, of the, the abiding? And the passage of Scripture, John 15, we just read together, lets us know that the purpose for all of this is fruit-bearing that we will bear fruit. And you saw that back in Isaiah. God came expecting one thing, saw another, 
and it got judged. The vine dresser comes to the branches here expecting to see one thing. If he doesn't see it, he, he judges it. So fruit bearing is a very important concept in John 15, and it lets us know that the purpose of this life of Jesus in me is so that fruit can be produced through me. It's not, though, about you reproducing the fruit. It's not about you trying to will yourself to, to become uh, fruity in your life. It's about abiding. And then the life of Jesus flows through you and begins to be reproduced in visible ways in your life. So you're engaging in this ongoing abiding relationship with Christ and Christ's life begins to show up in you. It is, it is the natural result of following Jesus. The natural result of you taking your walk with Jesus seriously is the life of Jesus beginning to show up in your life. How do we... How do we quantify that? I mean, are there measurements for that? Well, Jesus doesn't give us all of them, but he gives us some examples in John 15. He talks about conformity in three different areas of our lives. The first of this is conformity in the area of renewal. In other words, we conform our lives to the purposes of God, which is renewal in our lives, so that the life of Christ begins to show up. I'll show you where that happens. Look at verse 2 and 3. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. There is a, a process of God's work in our lives where those things in our lives which are not going to lead to the life of Jesus being reproduced in us where God cuts those things off. How many people have ever gardened at all? few of you. All right, one of the things I used to love to grow, I haven't been able to do it um, in the past few years because we've moved, but I used to love to grow blackberry canes. Love blackberries. I mean, again, I'm a southern boy, and I mean, you know, there are going to be blackberries in heaven. <laughs> they'll, they'll be thornless blackberries, but they, there will be blackberries in heaven. And there's a real kind of involved process with growing blackberries. Uh, uh, they only produce on first-year canes. You have to, after they produce, you have to cut them off because they won't produce. And then, in assessing as they begin to grow, which two or three of these have the best potential, and you cut them off because your goal is to get a good harvest of blackberries. When God looks at our lives, he sees some things that aren't going to produce a harvest of his son's life in us. And through his word, verse 3, through his word... He cuts those things away. And someone who is abiding conforms their life to this process of renewal. And frankly, that's why a good many of us never really see consistent, ongoing evidence of Christ's life in us. is because we're not willing to change a thing. Not a thing. I want to do me, Jesus, just like I've been doing me, but I want you to do something different with us. And then we're shocked when nothing happens. If you are abiding in Jesus, you will begin to conform your life to God's purpose of renewal in your life. That's one way 
that you can begin to assess the fruitiness of your life. The second way is by asking, is there conformity in prayer? Conformity in prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And that is the Willy Wonka golden ticket for a good many TV preachers, right? I mean, you just, it says right there, whatever you wish, whatever you want. But go back to the first piece of this. We are being conformed to God's purposes of renewal. And those things in our lives which are not going to lead to fruit bearing in our lives are cut away. So that by the time we get to the Lord in prayer, what we are asking for are those things to happen in our lives which will lead to the fruit of Christ's life in us. So it becomes less about what you want in your flesh and more about what you want to see happen in your life as God works and lives out and through you. So there's a conformity in our prayer, but you're saying, man, you know, when I was growing up going to church, there was always a lot of emphasis on how you act. You haven't said anything about how you act yet. But Jesus does as we we get towards the end. Look at verse 10. He says, if you abide my commandment, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. Here's the thing. If you're abiding, if you're in this consistent, transformative relationship with Jesus Christ, your life will begin to take on the characteristic of Christ's life, which was obedience to the Father. So it does transform itself into outward action. Our lives begin to become tangibly different. Um, from the way that the rest of the world lives their lives. Our lives begin to to bear the fragrance of Christ. You say, okay, well, how do I know if that's happening? Is there any way I can know where any of this stuff's happening? Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. My joy may be in you. Your joy may be full. Now, he's not talking about giddy handstands all the way through life there. Bear in mind that the joy he's speaking of having here is a handful of hours before his betrayal and execution, which he knew was coming. And he's speaking of joy here. What is joy? Well, I think probably the best way to describe it is by just using the word compelling. Joy, joy is compelling. In other words, when you see it, you may not be able to define it, but there's something compelling about it. There have been people who have been held up over the years in 30 plus years of doing church work as being exemplars of the Christian faith. And back in my head, I'll say, well, if that's what the Christian faith is, I don't even want it and I'm a preacher. Because there's nothing compelling about their life. That person's the meanest, sorriest rascal I've ever seen for in my life. That person's so wildly inconsistent in what they say and how they treat people, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, you can see it. There's nothing compelling about it. You don't want to be a part of that. But when you have the joy of Jesus in you, and you're seeking to obey the commands of the Father because that's what Jesus does in you, People may fundamentally disagree with what you're doing, but they can't argue 
the you. I, I don't agree with what you just said. But I have to give you there's something different about you. That something different is joy. And joy will crack through questions and skepticism and bring people to a point where they say, I don't understand any of this, but I do want that. I do want that. And so, as we close today, ask yourself some important questions. Ask yourself, is there power in my living that manifests itself in fruit? The fruit of a conformed purpose, conformed praying, conformed living, and a host of other things that Christ didn't mention in in John 15. Well, if not, if not, then take heed to the words of Jesus spoken in verse 2. If he fails to see his life in your life and never sees it, he cuts you off. Because you're indicating that your life never belonged to him in the first place. You were something wild grafted on. It doesn't belong to him. Following Jesus, John 15 ultimately tells us, is this. Following Jesus is serious business. It's not a Sunday habit. It's not uh, you know, an orientation uh, that causes you to view the world in, in, a, in a different way. It, it is ultimately a life or death death hug with Jesus and his life begins to be lived out in yours let's go to the Lord in prayer please